This is the Bitcoin Made Simple Podcast. Here's your host, Corey Tusick. Hey, everyone. This is Corey Tusick. Welcome to the Bitcoin Made Simple Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Uh, on today's episode, I interviewed uh, John Vallis. Uh, John has a podcast, uh, Bitcoin Rapid Fire. Um, and if you're in the Bitcoin world, you'll see him on Twitter and everything. Um, but, you know, John and I had a good conversation. We kind of talked about, you know, uh, Bitcoin in its simplest form, but also what it means, you know, in terms of freedom and, uh, you know, the freedom of money and how that can improve society and so forth. So I think uh, you guys will uh, enjoy it. And I really appreciate it. Without further ado, here is my interview with John Vallis. Well, welcome to the podcast. Uh, this is a new podcast, Bitcoin Made Simple. Uh, John Vallis is with me. Um, a lot of you might uh, know him from his podcast um, and on Twitter and you know everything. I mean, he's all over. If you're in, getting into the Bitcoin world, you've probably seen John pop up uh, all over the place. So, um, John, thanks for coming on. And, uh, you know, I started this podcast to kind of anticipate that there's going to be a lot of new people getting into the Bitcoin world. Um, and so what I, I would ask you to explain Bitcoin to me, like I'm five. Um, you don't have to quite go down to a five-year-old's level, but you know, for a lot of the new people, you know, I mean, I've been paying attention to it for a while. Um, but how would you explain it to, you know, in the most simplest terms to people that maybe are just dipping their toe into this? That's always such a hard question because it, there's so many different doorways into it. And I think people get lost in the mumbo jumbo. Like if you say it's an open decentralized censorship resistant, you know, value exchange protocol that nobody controls, <laughs> like people kind of go like, what? So, you know, I just, I call it freedom money. It's money. And, and, you know, you kind of have to go down the money rabbit hole, like what is money? And I think money is the way you preserve the sacrifices that you've made in the past. And it's how you express your will in the world, at least as far as, you know, you express your will in a market economy. And so to that extent, it's the, it's the preservation of your sacrifice and, and your, your ability to express your will without any intermediation. So it's true financial sovereignty. Um, and I think it's important for people to understand the ways in which that is not the case with all other forms of money that they are forced to use today. Um, and you know, that's a very interesting rabbit hole and that's a very interesting history as well. But the punchline is, is, you know, right now the cash in your bank, um, one, you can be cut off from it. Your bank can cut you off from it. The government can cut you off from it. It can be confiscated very easily. And two, every single day it's being devalued, uh, via the increase in the money supply. And in 2020, and of course, 2021, I don't think will any, be any different. Uh, that's become a much more obvious, apparent and egregious infringement that more and more people are becoming aware of. And I think that's one of the reasons why so much interest is coming into Bitcoin is because people are realizing when the government says they're going to stimulate, quote unquote, the economy with $3 trillion, what that means is that they're going, ultimately, that means that they're going to debase the value of you know the existing uh, holders of money in the society in order to redirect it. They're, what they're doing, they, they can't create value out of thin air, but the money printer allows them to siphon off the value of all the other money in existence and reallocate it. So really what the money printer does is it gives the privilege uh, of, of the allocation of resources in the economy, because that's done via money to the government, to the central planners 
rather than to the individuals who created and presumably and are presuming to store that value so that they can reallocate it at a later date for their own benefit. And so call it what you want. I call it theft because it's an involuntary confiscation of wealth. Um, and I think more and more people are waking up to that. And again, so Bitcoin is freedom money. Bitcoin is money that people can't steal from you. They can't confiscate from you. They can't disintermediate. In, intermediate. They can't censor. Um, it's yours to do with as you please. And, you know, it can't be devalued or debased over the course of time. There's only ever going to be 21 million. So your share of the total can be calculated the first time you ever buy Bitcoin and it will never, ever change as long as you hold on to that Bitcoin. And that's, you know, that's extremely unique. And a lot of people don't appreciate how unique that is because we've never had something that was absolutely scarce. With a, you know, with a terminal inflation rate of zero, that's completely supply inelastic. So no matter how much demand there is, the supply won't change. We've never encountered anything like that, particularly in something as important uh, and is in high demand as money. And so, you know, those are some of the reasons why it's so exciting for people. But again, to answer the question, it's freedom money. You know, it's money that's completely yours to do with as you please. Um, yeah, and I think you know, like you said. Uh, I mean, freedom money, I think is big, you know, freedom's always important, but, um, and I wish I would have got into Bitcoin a lot earlier. I've been paying attention to it, you know, so um, does everybody. <laughs> yeah, I know. I think that'll be everybody's regret. You know, it's like, no matter what point you get in, you wish you got into it earlier. Um, and, 100%. Uh, and you, you got to come to grips with that, you know, psychologically so you can move, move forward. Everybody yeah. does. Yeah. 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 Um, because, uh, you know, I've been paying attention to it. I, I've said before, but, uh, you know, I, I wanted to buy 10 Bitcoin when they were a hundred dollars piece, but I didn't fully understand it. I, I should have just taken the time to fully understand it. Cause I'm like, I can't put a thousand bucks into something until I fully understand it. Um, you know, and right mm -hmm. now that'd be worth $480,000. So that would have been, um, you know, a wise decision. Nice. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, so anyway, so everybody's going to have that. Um, but whenever, like you mentioned with the, the money printing, um, you know, when COVID hit last year, I'm like, and I, they started talking about how they're going to print money. I'm like, this isn't, this isn't good. Like, that's not like, that's not a good idea at all. Um, so I started, you know, exploring back to Bitcoin, like right when, right when COVID hit, you know, I'm like, okay, I got to put some money into that protect against any inflation and in, in printing that's going to happen. Um, and then the having, I actually had no idea that the having existed. Um, so I'm into, I'm getting into Bitcoin, like dipping my toes in, putting some money in. And then the having comes and it hits me. I'm like, oh my God, it restricts the supply chain. Like I had no idea this was a thing. Um, and so that is, I think, what pulled me down the rabbit hole where I'm like, oh my God, this is a structured restriction on this new supply. Um, it's as if, Satoshi knew that this was all going to happen. Like he timed it out perfectly. Um, and, uh, and so, yeah, I guess I, you know, walk people through like what, cause I've, you know, I went through that crash course of, you know, looking at everything, like what the restriction of new supply means versus the central bank, just printing money. I mean, at this point, um, you know, what's eye opening to a lot of people is that 25% of the US dollars in circulation didn't exist prior to March 2020. And 75% mm. um, of them didn't exist prior to the 2008 financial crisis. So, yeah, you know, and I'm sure in Canada, it's very similar and all across the world. So what, 
you know, what should people be, you know, most alarmed about their money losing value, you know, just keeping it in the bank. Like I, I try to tell people now, don't put your savings in the bank, put it in Bitcoin. It might, but it might be volatile. So, you know, how do you, how do you calm people's nerves? Yeah. I mean, there's a lot wrapped up there. And I, I think the number, the amount as a percentage of money that was printed in 2021 as a portion of the total is actually more, I think it came in at, at more than 25, maybe it's 30 or something, but I think that stat lands a bit more, uh, a bit more impactfully. If you say that more, um, like more money was printed in the last, well, as you said, since the financial crisis as was printed in the entire history of the dollar. You know, if you're looking at it from a 75% perspective or whatever, from the great financial crisis and, uh, and, and to your point about Satoshi's design, I mean, you know, we, we tend to idolize, um, Satoshi and, and rightly so mm -hmm. it, it's, it's a beautiful, uh, it's great to speculate kind of what his, uh, intentions, motivations, education was, you know, how, why the reasoning behind a lot of this stuff. And as you said, the having has been come, come to be known as quantitative hardening versus what we've, the term we hear from central banks is quantitative easing. And mm -hmm. one is a growth of the money supply. The other one is a restriction of it effectively, at least this restriction of new, new supply. And, um, you know, I, I would love to know someday what the specific reason, if there is one for the schedule of, for example, the four year havings, you know, what, what, why was that, you know, chosen as a time frame? Was it to allow for a certain amount of adoption within the, each of those four year periods? And, you know, I'd like to understand more about his philosophy in there and some of the other parameters of the network that, that, that were built into it. Um, what was the, the last part of that question? Uh, um, just, you know, like what, with people, you know, their money sitting in the bank is losing value. Um, and I think, you know, I've been properly put to the point where I've, I haven't like really documented all, but I like, I put the money in whenever the, when COVID hit uh, and I put enough into like, I had to feel the pain if it went down, you know, I was like, I need to like right. be able to get with this flow. And then I understood <laughs> the having and, and, um, and I, I started to learn about the quantitative easing that had been going on and all the money printing that has been happening since 2008. So I put more money in and more money. And now I'm to the point where I literally am like, I don't keep money in the bank because I think that that's a waste. <laughs> and, and so I'm trying to, you know, walk people through understanding, you know, like, like my parents, you know, they keep their money and their savings. And I'm like, it's lost like so much buying power just yeah. by sitting there and earning, you know, half a percent interest. So, um, you know, how would you articulate that to people like of, why I'm not saying, you know, people are like, don't put all your money in Bitcoin. I'm like, don't put all your money in the bank. Yeah, it's, it's a great question. And it really is a, like a shift in perspective. And, it, and it's a difficult one because if you, if you're looking at Bitcoin purely through the same lens that you look at other equity or other investments that you might make, you know, the, the kind of it's volatile, it's risky narrative works, but I don't, I think it fundamentally is not similar to any other investment. I think it's in a class of its own. And I think it's a paradigm shift. And as you say, I consider it as a savings account, right? So, you know, and people think that would be insane, you know, mm -hmm. because it's so risky and it could crash and all this kind of stuff. But I just see it as a better way to preserve my capital than holding it in the bank or putting it in equities where there's counterparty risk and there's manipulation and there's, you know, 
there's several intermediaries that could influence things. Obviously there's no hard cap supply on equities, you know, that kind of stuff. So, you know, I, I treat it very much the same way as you. And I think a lot of people that start to go down this rabbit hole do as well. They see it as I, you know, I call Bitcoin the most conservative in quote unquote investment you can make because it's money to me. Mm-hmm. And money is supposed to be the most conservative investment. Money is supposed to be the thing that you You're hold your wealth in. Something. <laughs> yeah. Prior to going out further on the risk spectrum to get more yield. And I, you know, I think we'll ultimately come to that point, whether it's in 10, 20, 30 years, whenever, you know, hyper Bitcoinization happens, uh, Bitcoin will become money. And let's say it roughly reflects the productivity growth of the earth on an annual basis, two, three, four, five, whatever percent it is. And that value will accrue to the the money that underlies that system, which is Bitcoin. And if you want greater yield, if you want greater returns, then you'll go out further on the risk spectrum and you'll go into equities and, and, you know, you'll, you'll deploy your capital in riskier ways, but money is supposed to be the most conservative store of wealth. And that's how I see Bitcoin. And when I say that to people, they're, they're like shocked, right? Because they think it's among the riskiest things you can be involved in. Mm -hmm. Um, but you know, there's a lot wrapped up in this one, like we said before, I mean, if you're comparing it to a money that has no limit, right? The U.S. dollar, the Canadian dollar, the Euro, they've all been tremendously abused since their inception, but it's especially over the last year. I mean, would you rather have a money that at the click of a button can be diluted by 20, 30, 40, 50% and has been as of, and has lost 99% of its value since its inception? Are you comfortable holding, you know, a big chunk of your life savings in that? And not to mention the fact that, you know, there's withdrawal limits from the bank and you can be shut off from it. And let's say you say the wrong thing politically and maybe MasterCard decides they don't want to be your customer. You know, Mm -hmm. we've seen examples of this uh, over the last few years. And so, you know, do you not want an alternative that doesn't have those restrictions? And that, again, preserves the value of your prior sacrifice, the prior deployment of your time and energy, which is your work. Do you not want something that holds that value better? in perpetuity into the future. And then on a macro scale, you know, and and this takes a little bit more digging economically uh, to understand, but when you begin to realize the damaging effects that that type of monetary intervention that currently goes on with central banking has on the economy and has on not only the cost of goods and services that you have access to, but the variety and quality of goods and services that you have access to, um, when you realize that the the perversions and the distortions that that messing with the price signal like that has on an economy, you know, um, then you start to realize that it's not just about preserving the value of your savings moving forward into the future. Um, but it's about it's about kind of casting a vote for a fairer and ultimately more, you know, more prosperous, more peaceful, you know, market, you know, Mm -hmm. globally speaking. And, um, you, you know, it gets really exciting because once you understand that relationship, you understand how much productivity and how much efficiency gains are being siphoned off are being withheld from people in the market because of this style of monetary system that we all live under, because so much gets to be skimmed off the top by the people that can create money at zero cost. And when you realize that, that, that those benefits of human ingenuity, innovation, productivity, efficiency should actually be accruing to all the participants in the market rather than a very, very select few, then it gives, it it, it becomes kind of a political move. You know, you say like this, this is, this is fair money, fair and free money for the world. 
and everyone should have the same access to it and the same opportunity. And what that produces as a result is incredibly exciting. You know, this is why we, there's a lot of talk of, you know, uh, the concept of like a Bitcoin Renaissance, not dissimilar from the Renaissance we saw in the past, just, Mm -hmm. you know, amplified dramatically. And, you know, one thing that I, you know, all Bitcoiners come off as a little kooky, right? Because we're kind of, we're kind of Mm -hmm. operating outside the, the mainstream narrative, but it's funny how, look, if any, any dynamic and like find it anywhere, but if there's ever a dynamic where one person or one group of people are able to create something of value that the market values, but at zero cost and everyone else in that market has to work to acquire that thing of value, the inevitable relationship is one of slavery because one group is able to produce at zero cost what everyone else has to give away their time to get. And so that's what we have on a mass scale today with central banking. A small group of people get to create money at zero cost. It's, at this point, it's literally just a click of a computer button. It's an entry in a, in a database, in a spreadsheet. Uh, and everyone else has to give away their time incre- like on an increasing basis. You know? So you've got you've to work, keep working longer and harder just to keep up. And that's, that's another, you know, I think one of the reasons why we see a lot of the problems in society today with mental health, with substance abuse, with all that kind of stuff is because even though people don't, don't consciously understand this relationship, obviously they feel it, Mm -hmm. you know, they're being impacted by it and they know that they're having to work harder and harder for less and less. And that's because one group of people can create money for zero cost and everyone else has to um, work, you know, give away their time for it. And as a result of that small group siphoning off all the productivity, prices are going up and up and up, but wealth is, is continually diverging, you know, from the, let's say the majority to a small minority. And so again, like when, and people have drawn this conclusion, uh, in Bitcoin, uh, Rob Breedlove, who wrote a great piece called masters and slaves of money that I recommend to everybody really illustrates this point and illustrates it in some, some small examples where it's happened in the past and in Africa and other places. But, you know, I say this to people, I say that that's, what's going on. It's not, that's not hidden. I mean, you have the fed, uh, the fed chairs on national TV saying, yeah, we have access to infinite, infinite amount of money. And so we can, we can deploy that how we like. And it doesn't sink into people that if you've got to work for your money, but another group of people doesn't, the like the only outcome is is a relationship of slavery and maybe it happens for a time slow enough that it's not sufficiently motivating for people to do something about it but i think we're heading into a time where it's happening quick enough that people are starting to notice it and it is becoming increasingly motivating to do something and look a lot of people saw this for the last hundred years 50 years 30 years i mean people have been decrying the central banking system for a long time and the gold bugs were kind of the ones that were, uh, you know, beating that drum, mm-hmm. but they, there was no really great alternatives. You know, gold is an interesting form of money and it had some, um, periods in the past where it, you know, served the, the function of money fairly well, but it suffers from a lot of fatal drawbacks. And one of them is that because of its physicality and because of its high value to weight ratio, it's it centralizes, you know, Mm -hmm. it centralizes for the purpose of security. It centralizes for the purpose of usability so that, you know, you can, 
you know, store all the gold in one place, issue paper notes, and people can yeah. transact in that much more easily. And because of that, you introduce a, a massive um, amount of trust in the per, in the per the person, the institution who's administering that, who's securing that, who's who who has control over that. And ultimately, that trust is broken uh, when when enough money is mm-hmm. on the table, when there's enough incentive to do so. Trust will be broken. It may be preserved for a time, but if there's no true restraint on it, it will be broken. And this is what we saw in the Bretton Woods system in in the U.S. And, you know, so after the war, all the countries got together and they said, you know, a lot of money money printing went on during the the war. You know, there's a lot of debt. We got to figure out a way out of this. Okay, how about everyone sent their gold to the U.S. uh, during the war anyways for safekeeping. Mm -hmm. All right, we've got all the gold. So let's have every currency. Let's make the US dollar the reserve currency and all US dollars can be redeemed for gold. Won't Mm -hmm. that be a great system? And, you know, by and large, I wouldn't call it a great system, but it was certainly an improvement for, you know, not a bad, not terrible. Yeah, exactly. For 30 odd years. But in 1971, Nixon just goes, hey, world, um, yeah, we're just going to not redeem us dollars for gold anymore hope that's okay and (laughs) what's the whole world going to do i mean the u.s is a superpower they have all the gold they have all the weapons and so the world just goes well okay i guess i mean what what are we going to do about it and since that time we've had extreme debasement of all paper currencies around the world and not only that, I mean, I'll d- direct your listeners to WTF happened in 1971. It's a great website that um, some, some great Bitcoiners put together, but it really is helpful in showing the relationship between the money that an economy, in this case, a global economy must use is predicated on mm-hmm. and some of the social effects that you might not intuitively draw a direct line to how the money impacts those things, how the type of money impacts incarcerations. And of course, how the type of money impacts the cost of living and, you know, all this kind of stuff. But, you know, the, the punchline there is that it's fundamental to the proper functioning of an economy to have a sound money. And when you don't have it, a lot of problems emerge in society. And that's what we've actually seen since 1971. But the problem is, is that there's been no solution. So all the people that have identified this problem correctly, they've just been vying for a return to the gold standard. But that just puts us back in this cycle, this virtuous cycle where sure, maybe there's some disaster. We get together for a time and we say, okay, we'll go back to gold. We're there for 30, 50, a hundred years, whatever. And then it falls apart. Mm-hmm. So at best it's a temporary solution. Uh, and Bitcoin came around and it, you know, it's, it's a sound money that people can't manipulate. that can't be corrupted. And because it exists in the digital world, um, you don't have that problem of centralization. Everyone can self-custody their own Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and everyone, because of the, the, you know, it's divisibility and how it's transmitted over a communications network, you don't need to have someone else custody in order for you to spend it. Mm-hmm. You know, so it, it really is the best form of money that we've ever had by many orders of magnitude, in my opinion. And so as a result, now when people identify these problems, and as you said, you know, in the last year, more and more people have now on the landscape of solutions, whereas 13 years ago, you know, everyone just had to throw up their hands and say, there's nothing you can do about it, or you become a gold bug. Now on the landscape of solutions is here's this sound money that will preserve the value of my capital that I can easily acquire just with my cell phone. 
that I can custody myself that I can take with me anywhere I go. So if I need to pick up sticks and leave because my government is too oppressive or, you know, some sort of emergency or whatever, I can Mm -hmm. pick up sticks and go. It's acceptable and exchangeable all over the world. Like that is a, I won't say perfect, but far closer to perfect money than we've ever had. And, you know, so I think, I think more and more people are recognizing that. And because it's so easy and because there's so much great content about it, and because the macro la- landscape around people is forcing them to try to, is to start to ask these questions, more and more people are funneling into it. And I don't see that changing. I see that accelerating. And, you know, that is the path, in my opinion, to hyper-Bitcoinization, where everybody, both via necessity and out of their own interests, goes into this better form of money. And that forms the basis for, an, a, you know, another renaissance. Uh, and because mm-hmm. as we were saying, if, if society... To, to put it a little bit too, uh, you know, broad strokes, but if we say that society has been degrading since 1971, as the world has been on a paper money fiat standard, um, and worse and worse as time has gone on, then once we all, when once the world is on a sound money standard of the nature of Bitcoin, then we start going in the opposite direction. The world starts getting better and better and better and better. And that's what excites me. And that's what excites so many people in this space to talk about it and to promote and to educate is because what kind of a world can be built on top of a money like this is really exciting. And it kind of staggers the imagination and there's no utopia. That's not the track that I'm mm-hmm. going down here. There's always going to be inequality based on talents and work ethic and all that kind of stuff. But at least the rules of the game will be same, the same for everybody. Nobody is going to be able to cheat it. You know, mm-hmm. people will start at different places along it and that will have an effect. Like everyone's still going to be different, but nobody can cheat the system and will be, will be incrementally going in a better direction rather than a worse. And I think that's, what's so exciting. And, and just a final point about that is a lot of people might push back and like you have the Steven Pinkers of the world saying like, you know, the world has never been better. Life has never been better. And I think you could probably challenge that on a few domains. I mean, if you look around the world today, especially uh, the developed world, there's a lot of mental health issues and, mm-hmm. you know, um, whether this is economic, this is media, this is, you know, there's a lot wrapped up in it, but the fact is like, there's a lot of unhappiness in the world. And yes, like we have mobile phones and we have Netflix and we have Instagram and mm-hmm. we're supposed to assume that that's some sort of pinnacle of technological development and human happiness. And I just don't agree with that. Um, mm-hmm. I think, I think, as I said earlier, a lot of this tech, technology advancement is great. And, you know, I I love innovation and stuff like that, but one, what would we have had, had we, if we were on a sound money standard already, that's an interesting question to Mm -hmm. ask. Um, but two, how much has been held back because of the nature of the money, which allows, you know, a small group to siphon off so much of the efficiency and productivity gains that the world and the market actually uh, conjures up. So I think, you know, since 71, things have been unwinding. And I think now we finally have a really great foundation to start to, to build something better on. And that, and, you know, ultimately that's why we're all here. Of course we have self-interest in this, but that's a great thing about Bitcoin is that it's kind of a meta incentive that aligns everyone's incentives. And the primary reason it does that is because the rules are the same for everybody. And so I think like I I'm involved in this space. I invest in, you know, I store some of my capital in Bitcoin because I think it's going to benefit me but I also do that because the same thing that benefits me is what benefits, you know, the network and all the other people that are aligned with it. And that's a very powerful notion. 
Mm-hmm. So I think that's, that's some of the reasons why there's so much excitement around this. Yeah. And I, I've seen that, you know, even with, um, like as, as I've gotten into it, you know, and then, you know, it, I have friends asking about it, you know, and, and starting to get into it. Um, and it's like, I see that because you're, it's a benefit for both of us because it's a fairer system for them to get into. And it's also beneficial for me because then the network grows more people are using it, more people are adopting, um, and the price goes up and, you know, um, the awareness now, I mean, I think like the, the genie is out of the bottle, you know, like the toothpaste is out of the tube. Um, and I don't know if it's going to really, cause you know, in 2017, everybody's like, wow, can you believe that? It's like $15,000 for a Bitcoin. And then, you know, it kind of disappeared for out of the mainstream news. Um, but you know, I don't, I don't see that, that changing now. <clears throat> um, at least not as much. No, in the I, don't, past. I don't either. Um, uh, what, what was it like, you know, over the last couple of years? Cause let's say, I mean, since I've been into it, there've been like a couple times where I put money in and it maybe dropped 20% or something I'm like, Oh, um, but you know, I've been in a very fortunate and I think a lot of the class of 2020 has been in a, you know, mainly number go up scenario, you know, where it's like, Oh, put money in there. And Oh my God, there's more. If you got in in March of 2020, it's been a great ride. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There've, there've been a couple of times where like, I like doubled, doubled down and then tripled down. And there was a little bit of a dip, like, and I was like, of course, right. Whenever I go big, even bigger, you know, like there's a dip and then, and then it recovered quickly. And, and, um, you know, now we're at all time highs again, uh, you know, 48,000, I'm sure we'll hit 50 soon. Um, but you know, what was it like, you know, going through that, like 80% drop, you know, where you were, you were through that, I assume, right. You were back a yeah. part of that. I mean, cause yeah, it hit what, um, 19,000 and dropped down to three. Yeah. I think in, in December 18, it was at like 32 or 3,400, something like that. Um, honestly, th- not one of them have ever phased me. I mean, look like I, to the extent that you buy something at 15 and it drops to three and you think like, well, that investment could have gotten me, you know, three, four times as much. You know, what, what, Mm -hmm. that, that stings because you could have had more Bitcoin, but you can't time these things, you know, and like, you, you never know what it's going to do. And on one, sometimes you're on the winning side of that. Sometimes you're on the losing side of that, which is why I think, you know, over the last two years, this approach of dollar cost averaging has really come to the forefront for two reasons. One, because you get into this and there's so much noise and there's all coins and there's trading and people are like, Oh, I can trade the volatility. I'll just buy it when it's like low. And then when it's up there mm-hmm. and it, and it goes up a lot, I'm going to sell it and wait for it to come back down. It's like, yeah, that sounds like a great plan. Good, Good luck, luck with that. <laughs> but, but it just to save you the psychological turmoil of always being like trading or watching it or wondering when to get in and get out. Like now the DCA approach that I think it gives you it averages your cost over time, of, of course, but it also allows you to release the psychological you know, from the psychological prison of being involved in this thing. And then you can focus on <clears throat> educating yourself or expressing yourself or learning more about it. And you're not so crazy focused on the price, you know, because a lot of people fall down that, you know, are, are subject to that when they come in. And I don't think that's ultimately beneficial, but mm-hmm. you know, to, to answer your question directly, uh, the price drops, 
like there's nothing, there's never been a price drop where I've been like, shit, I've always been like amazing. You know, like I hate this price action that we have now. I hate mm-hmm. it because I feel like this thing is inevitable. Mm-hmm. I, you know, hyper Bitcoinization is I'm extremely confident and convicted that that's going to happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I want more time to stake more territory. And yeah. when I see the price go from 10 grand to let's say 50 grand, that makes me sad because it yeah. makes me realize that the window of opportunity is closing. And I don't really care what that means for my fiat currency exchange value of whatever my holdings are. I want my nominal number of Bitcoin to increase. And every time the price goes up, that means it's harder for me to make my nominal amount of Bitcoin increase. So, uh, you know, I hate, I hate price action. I wish we'd be in another bear. I wish we'd have another like five year bear, bear market tomorrow. There'd be a lot of building. There'd be a lot of great education, but I, I just, like you said, I think the genie's out of the bottle the last two years, especially like 19 and 20, the amount of content uh, in the space has just exploded, you know, like even in 17, there was like a couple of podcasts, a couple of articles, a book mm-hmm. or two, you know, and before that it was basically Andreas doing most of this, you know, the YouTube mm-hmm. stuff and, and writing. And now like there's a new Bitcoin book out every week. There's articles all the damn time. Just check out Guy Swan's Bitcoin audible. And he, he mm-hmm. has, he has to do one or two a day just to keep up. Um, everyone's talking about it. There's a bajillion podcasts. Um, you know, so obviously it, it's out of the bottle. And the thing is with Bitcoin is the only way, in my opinion, that you can dismiss it is if you dismiss it from the get-go. If you're like, it's not possible to have a non-state money or it's not possible to have digital scarce money or digital sound money. So a lot of the gold bugs dismiss it for that reason. And a lot of the, like, let's say mainstream economists, mainstream finance types dismiss it for that reason. But if you actually say, I'm a skeptic, but of course it's possible. So the best way to test my skepticism is to actually learn. If you take that approach, there's no way you come out the other end thinking this thing is a scam or a pile of shit, or it's not going to work. Like Mm -hmm. there's been too many really smart people that came before you that asked those questions that put the pressure on their own thinking and put the pressure on this thing, went into every nook and cranny and explored it and explained it and tried to poke holes in it. And they come out the other end saying, holy shit, Mm -hmm. uh, this, this thing is very, very unique. And so that's the genie out of the bottle. And as this explosion of content grows, uh, more and more people are going to be hooked in by that. And And a fascinating thing that I like to dig into on my podcast is there's a genuine culture emerging around this thing. And I guess to frame it up, like what I was saying before about a Renaissance, you you would expect that, right? You would expect Mm -hmm. these new forms of interaction behavior, this new sound money system to conjure up uh, a a unique culture. And the first manifestation of that, that I've seen, and like, I haven't come across many people that get, you know, into this and start learning about it that don't report this, but it's one that a lot of mainstream people would be probably surprised to hear is just the extent that it, it actually changes individuals, like in in pretty fundamental ways, like people really start changing their behaviors and their perspectives on things. So, you know, you're, you're who you are and you're a normal person. Then you fall down the Bitcoin rabbit hole 
and your, you know, your philosophies begin to change, your perspectives begin to change the way you see the world, you know, in various domains changes. And then the way you see yourself in the world changes. And then the behaviors that you engage in changes. And a lot of people report, you know, taking better care of their health and, you know, getting rid of negative relationships, focusing on positive ones, spending more time educating themselves, saving a lot more, thinking more about the future, having a greater hope for the future, thinking about having families. Like, this is very, very mm-hmm. common stuff. And, and, and for people to hear that there's such dramatic behavior change associated with a money, a quote unquote money yeah. on the internet is a really bizarre notion. But again, it seems to be almost unavoidable, uh, when you get involved in this stuff. And I, I love, you know, trying to understand that process better. Yeah. I mean, even, um, you know, me, I mean, we, we're, we have a couple of kids and, you know, want to have more. And, and as, as our family gets bigger, we're like, yeah, we need more land. We need, you know, we want to, we need a bigger house, all that kind of stuff. So we always wanted to like, kind of get out of the suburbs and, and into more like, you know, we said like a half acre to an acre of land, but now I'm like, very common, very common. Yeah. But now I'm <laughs> no, looking get at out, it. Get out I'm of the like, city, get I'm like, Ooh, there's like a 25 acre plot of land. And like, <laughs> I'm telling my wife, like, she's like, Oh, we only need like, I've got her up to like four now. She's like, Oh, we could go for four, you know? But I'm like, there's 25 acres. Um, this has like, you know, a lot of woods. It has a stream. And like we could have like hydro power, you know, electric and all that kind of stuff. And it's like, Oh my God. Like I, like you look back at where I was just before I put money in Bitcoin and I'm like, I wasn't even thinking about this stuff. I even, you know, have thought about getting healthier, even mental health. I feel like it's been one of the big um, focuses, you know, of like, I, I like, I got rid of social media across the board. Like I, you know, now starting a podcast, it's like, I guess I will have, you know, my, my Twitter account for the, for the podcast and, you know, a way to communicate digitally. But as far as personally goes, you know, I was finding, like how, you know, I wasn't like depressed, but it it would put you in a bad mood. You know, you'd go on Facebook and like, you, you feel these terrible things like envy and jealousy of other people. And, um, I was like, I, that's not how I want to live my life, you know? And, and now it's to the point where, you know, you see like work was always so important and working. And now you see the value of like, um, you know, putting money in something that can help sustain you where you maybe have to work less as time goes on, you know, you have more freedom, you know, I, a year ago, I wouldn't have had time to, to spend half a day a week, um, putting together a, a Bitcoin podcast. Um, and now here I am I'm like, Oh yeah, I could, I could afford to, you know, spend a handful of hours doing it. Um, so yeah, I, I see that. Like, like every great, or like every true belief, it restructures your hierarchy of value. And that seems to be what's happening across the board in Bitcoin. It's just, you know, people's hierarchies of value of how to spend their time and who with and what for is being restructured. Uh, and I think restructured in a way that's very beneficial to them. And, and you know, you mentioned kind of Citadel, right? Like mm-hmm. having your own place away from people that's independent. I mean, once you achieve sovereignty over the the most concentrated form of value that we collectively as a society have, which is money. Once you've established complete sovereignty over that, uh, you look around your world for other forms of sovereignty. 
you know, and you want to establish it in other places. So your living environment, like where, where are the dependencies that make me non-sovereign that make me subject to the will of other people? Where are those in my life? And like anyone who lives in a city, it's like, well, your electricity, your water, your apartment building, your transportation, like we're very much beholden and dependent on the systems of other people, the will of other people. And I'm not saying that's necessarily bad, but it is a dependency. And if one of your goals is kind of like complete sovereignty, and I think that's an absolutely fine goal and one that I have myself, um, then you want to, to the extent possible, reduce those dependencies or at least find like a happy medium that you're comfortable with, you know? And so for me, you know, I, you know, very much aspire to that place with on a lot of land that's entirely independent off the grid, that kind of thing where there's, you know, you don't really have any dependencies. And then as, and when you wish, when you want that dynamism, that complexity, that novelty of experience, you can go into, you know, centers that have far more diversity and things on offer, but you can retreat back to a place that you're completely sovereign over that you, you know, you're master of your domain as it were. Mm -hmm. And I think the, the, the idea of sovereignty and of freedom has been so lost for so long uh, by most people in the world because of our systems of money, systems of governance. Um, you know, this has been the story of history basically is, you know, since the time of the agricultural revolution, things have concentrated and that concentration has meant more novelty and more specialization and, and more diversity in our experience of everyday life but it's also meant more dependency. And anytime you have a dependency, that is a dilution of your freedom, of your sovereignty. And um, so now I think this idea, because largely of the impetus Bitcoin is, is causing, people are starting to think about that notion more. Mm-hmm. And they're starting to think, you know, how important is it to me? How much more of that do I want to establish in my life and where? And that's a process of, you know, reorienting your plans for your life and being like, you know what? I, I wanted that penthouse, like a place in Miami because it's fly and by the club mm-hmm. and all my favorite restaurants. But actually I'd rather have that place in the woods that I'm completely independent, where I'm completely independent, raise a family there and travel around and check out like cool city centers, you know, whenever we want to mm-hmm. or, or whatever mix works for people. But I, I think the, I think the idea or the impetus for thinking about your life, through the lens of sovereignty and freedom is something that Bitcoin is, is generating more of in people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I, something I've been like contemplating is I, th- I said, it's unfortunate that there isn't a completely free, uh, like new land, you know, like there isn't an America where it's like, Hey, there's pure freedom to this in this new country right. come here. Um, Cause I certainly would flock to that. And I think a lot of people would, um, but then I did just see, um, somebody posted about, I think it's maybe Thailand has like 50 uninhabited, like Caribbean islands or, or not Thailand, uh, uh, tropical islands, um, something like that. And I was like, Ooh, there it is. There's the new country. Like, let's, <laughs> let's all move to that one. Well, that's the, that's the hunt right now. Right. Like, especially in light of all this COVID nonsense that people, you know, a lot of Bitcoiners are wondering like, where is the most freedom in the world right now? Um, mm-hmm. And I, you know, in, in the past, like in, in our lifetimes, it was places like Hong Kong and, you know, Gibraltar and Malta and the Cayman Islands where basically it's like, where has the lowest tax? And that's mm-hmm. like kind of a proxy for the, the most freedom. Um, 
but now it's, it's seeming like, you know, red state U.S. are the ones most intent on preserving individual rights and, and freedom and low taxation, that kind of stuff. And it's still very early days for the sovereign individual thesis. You know, that's that's mm. a great book, you know, for people listening that they haven't if they haven't checked out, it kind of explains how and why history has unfolded, how it has and what the impacts of the cyber economy and information technology is going to have on the structure of governance and what, pe how people are going to respond to that. But, um, I see that playing out, you know, mayor of Miami yesterday was saying, we're going to, uh, allow our employees to be paid in Bitcoin. We're going to allow people to pay taxes in Bitcoin, and we're going to uh, put Bitcoin on the, the treasury, you know, we're going to wow. put it on the, our, yeah. our, our balance sheet. And, um, you know, so that's the beginning, that's the beginning of, this competition between jurisdictions to say, Hey, now Bitcoin's going to be a big thing. People with Bitcoin are going to be well capitalized, you know, and, and innovative and building something new. We want a piece of that. We're going to try to attract them and jurisdictions all over the world are going to now be in a competition for that. And it's going to drive services up and prices down in those jurisdictions. And by prices, I mean like taxation and yeah. costs associated. And uh, you know, maybe, there's, I don't think there's a clear winner yet, unfortunately, because I'd love to just be like, boom, let's go. Let's, let's, yeah, go, let's there. All go there. Everybody but, meet. Yeah. But I, I think that'll play out over the next 10, 20 years. And, you know, maybe we'll have to move around a bit to find, you know, that, that the final you know place where you want to really sink in roots, but it, it's definitely underway and that's encouraging. Yeah. Yeah. No, it, it is weird. Um, you know, whenever you think that way and, and it's like, I have this, I, it's part of the political situation in the world right now that I hate um, that everything's like, you know, it, it, it's extremism and you're in one camp or the other for everything. And people identify as one mm -hmm. thing, you know, but I'm like, Oh yeah, I would want to move to red States so that I could have that freedom. And then that when, you, if you say that to somebody, they like automatically come up with this laundry list of things that, that you believe in apparently you know, they're like, well, you must think this, this, and yeah. this, and this. And I'm like, no. And like, my biggest thing is like, <laughs> I just don't want people, like, I don't care what anyone else does, but why do you have to? I just want to be left alone. Yeah. I just want to do my thing, <laughs> you know? And the, it's like, if you don't like what I'm doing, then don't, don't watch me. Don't look at me. Don't <laughs> like, why does it bother you so much that I'm doing yeah. what I want to do? And, and I, I have this theory that like, it's this, like this absolute need that people have for like verification to be, to be, to feel like, you know, they need a justification in what they're doing um, because they're deep down, not really happy, you know, or like mm -hmm. they haven't really found that. So they're like, I need you to be, you know, happy. Like I need you to approve of what I'm doing in order to like, feel like I'm doing something right. Whereas I think a lot of people that, you know, are more in the sovereign individual mindset are like, I can judge for myself whether or not I'm happy. And I don't, I could care less what you think about how I live my life. Um, and yeah. And I, and, but it, but it is unfortunate now in this world where you're like, if you say that they're like, Oh, you must love Donald Trump and you must be a racist <laughs> and you must blah, blah, blah. And it's like, no, like, <laughs> it's, it means none yeah, of those no. things. <laughs> You're totally right. And, uh, you know, I think there's a lot wrapped up in it, but I, I do think one of the fundamental reasons is that when people step out of like the, 
the the norm of whatever political ideology or, or type of behavior, like it is inherently a threat to those people that are, are still in that domain. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I've just started reading this book and I, I'm kind of ashamed to admit that I haven't read it earlier in my life. Um, you know, cause I, I have always enjoyed reading, but I'm reading the Gulag archipelago right now. And, mm-hmm. um, it's one of the things that concerns me a lot is with all the, 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 the way that the political domain and rhetoric is happening in the world today, it seems like people don't have any appreciation for how things went really, really, really wrong in the past. Mm-hmm. Like they, they kind of think like the evils or the tragedies of the past were like, how could people not have noticed that this evil had emerged and why didn't they just stop it? Like when it happened, like uh-huh. we're so much smarter now than they were. Uh, and that's just not the case. You know, those things happen in the past because first it was a drip and then it was a drip and then it was a drip. And most people acquiesce to the drip and they, they move in herds and they think in herd mentality and they just accept, 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 accept. And then you, you sprinkle in fear of stepping outside of the mainstream narrative, fear, 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 fear. And before you know it, you're in a place that's really, really dark where anything can happen and bad stuff does happen. And by that time you're too powerless, you're too afraid to do anything about it, to stop it. And then you actually contribute to the atrocity through your complacency, if not through your direct involvement, Mm -hmm. right? Because all those people that worked for uh, the Soviet government, the German government, you know, pick, pick your poison. Any, anytime these atrocities have happened, it's not like all those people were bad, evil people, not Mm -hmm. at all. They were just, you know, they, they were just slowly strung along, slowly acquiesced, slowly, uh, slowly didn't speak up um, until the point where they actually believed they were in the right in a lot mm-hmm. of those times. And that like what they were doing wasn't evil. What they were doing was good. Mm-hmm. It just required this, you know, uh, this business to, to get to, to execute on that good. And there's so little appreciation for that today. And the COVID stuff is such a great example of that, that, you know, everyone around the world, just without any work on their own behalf, without any investigation, without any pushback whatsoever, just agrees and acquiesces with what has been passed down from pick your authority source, World Health Organization, government, whatever. Similar uh, and undergirding all that is what we were talking about, the money um, previously, that is another system of extreme oppression of, you know, extreme acquiescence to something that's unjust. And so you pile all these things on top of each other. And then you, you have a political divide and ideologies that are incredibly, um, combative, you know, Mm -hmm. towards one another. And it really sees the other as a form of like evil enemy. Um, and you, you know, we seem to be in a, a landscape or a time in society today where, you know, truth uh, and rational and logical thought and discourse doesn't seem to be at all a priority. Mm-hmm. It's all about emotion, fear, and acting uh, like acting in accord with your side of things, mm-hmm. regardless of the truth, regardless of whatever data is available, regardless of logic. And when we find ourselves in a place like that, really, really unbelievable things can happen. Cause that's the story of history. Unbel- mm-hmm. you, like you never allow yourself to believe that unbelievable things can happen and then unbelievable things happen. And it's only in hindsight where you go, 
wow, I can't believe that happened. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Like that, that's what history is like, pick your period. There's, there's so many examples of that. And I don't know why we continue to be so blind to that. I mean, obviously education and having a historical context is, is part of appreciating that, but um, you know, so I'm extremely uh, excited uh, and motivated about what Bitcoin represents for turning that around over the long term, but we're in such a precarious situation in the world today, far more than I think people realize that you know we're in those periods where people have acquiesced for so long and done away with truth and logic and and rational thinking for so long that. I think, you know, we're in a place where a spark can set off an inferno right now. Mm -hmm. And what that is, I don't know, because you can never really predict that. But it's just really concerning to me that nobody seems to care about truth anymore. And, you know, once once you let go of that, all bets are off. And that's why I feel personally like right now I'm living in some kind of bizarro world. And that's a that's a disconcerting feeling because it means less things are, are predictable, right? Like mm-hmm. if you feel like the world is, the, the more you feel like the world is predicated on truth and logic and reason, the more as an individual, you can feel confident that you can get a hold on the world. You can kind of predict and expect certain things to happen. And we're in a period now where that, ha- that has been diminished greatly. And that's disconcerting because it, then it kind of makes it more difficult to move through the world because you have far less confidence in, in, what's going to happen. Yeah. Um, you know, and I, like, I feel like politically homeless, um, you know, where it's like, because yeah. you're just like, what's going to happen here in the future. And, and, um, yeah, having that uncertainty is, is, uh, is, is not easy for people. Um, you know, and I, I think that the media, I mean, if you, my real thoughts, I think the, like, general news media and all that are like the scum of the earth. Um, hundred <laughs> percent because I, so, you know, I, I mean, I'm for people that don't know, I'm a, like in the movie and entertainment world and, and do producing and distribution and everything. So I'm very familiar with that. I went to school for this stuff. Um, and I remember I, you know, I was in college in 2008 and I'm sitting there looking at the landscape thinking like this cable you know, I actually just said to my wife recently and she, uh, admitted she hates to admit that I'm right. <laughs> but, uh, I was, I was like, I predicted all this of how it would break down, you know, like the, the basic cable package would no longer exist, but then it would build back up into all these different things where you basically might as well have cable again, because you have to subscribe to 20 different services. Um, and, but I, along the way, I was like this, is going to destroy the news media. And that is such a cash cow for the elites that I'm really, really curious. Like I didn't want the chaos that would come from that. But I remember for a long time thinking it's going to be interesting to see how they flail on their way down the pit. Like, cause they're the news media, you know, Fox news, CNN, um, MSNBC, all of them will be dead. They're already pretty much dead. Um, and they're bleeding out right now. And I just thought, what's it going to be like? But I never predicted that it would be this insane. Um, where right now they are 
doing everything they can. There's, they've always been blood money, but now they're doing everything they can to pit Americans against each other and, and people against each other. You know, and just in general conversation, it kind of hit me yesterday talking to a friend and, um, and I'm like, okay, if you're, if you're more on the left, you think that we're in this pandemic because people on the right didn't follow protocols, you know, like they've success, the media has successfully vilified half the country. And, and then conversely, if you're on the right and you're, you know, not a free thinker and you're just going down, you think that everyone on the left is never wants you out of your house again, when really everybody mm. wants life to go back to normal. But the, they, the media has trained you to think one way or the other. And it's like, and I just was really like, that bothered me yesterday to sit there and think about like, wow, there are a lot of people out there that think the only reason we're in this. Personally, I think the virus is real, but I don't think there was anything you were going to do to stop it. You know, like I think that where we are right now was going to happen regardless. And the kind of is proven by the fact that we've taken some places have taken major restrictions. Some have not. And it's really um, kind of just run its course. And, um, and it is what it is, you know, like it, the difficult conversation to have with people is that, I mean, you know, you can get into the numbers of how few people it is, but it's like, yeah, it's a virus. Somebody's going to die from it. It's, it is what it is. You should move on with your life, you know? Yeah. Like people yeah, are going to die mean, in car crashes. It, yeah, exactly. And, and I think what's disconcerting to a lot of free thinkers, Bitcoiners, whatever is how much it's how much it illustrates the failure uh the failures of of centralized planning and centralized authority whereby you know we're, we found ourselves in this place where uh the people that govern you can tell you your family that they can't earn a living let's say you're a sole proprietor in a business you know whatever uh, that they can just shut you down and you can't earn a living you can't make a choice based, based in, you nor your customers can make a choice about their own safety but someone else is making it for them. Mm -hmm. And just, we've gone so far down uh, the road of the state being so large and being so invasive in people's lives. And the crazy thing is, I mean, it's kind of, it's like a Stockholm syndrome sort of, con uh, you know, scenario or, you know, Plato's cave or pick your metaphor, but um, it's, you know, people don't really realize that the way that it is and how far it's gone and how big it is and that it can be any other way, you know, the, 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 the tricky thing about the present moment in any era that you kind of think that because all time and development has come before it, like this is like the, the, the vanguard of it is a vanguard of history. And therefore it's like the best things should or could be. Mm -hmm. And it, it, I think, think, I think that makes it more difficult to like, it's like the fish in water sort of thing. It's like, you know, the two fish are swimming along and, and like one of them says, uh, like, isn't the water great this morning, Bob? And, and Bob smiles and nods and then the other fish goes on. And then Bob asks his friend, like, what's water? You know, it's like people just don't yeah. realize the, the true circumstances of the surroundings of the structures that they're embedded in because they were born into them by and large. And that they seem extremely normal. So they're not, they're not being assessed on their merits. Uh, like they're not being isolated and assessed on their merits. But I think well, this current quote unquote crisis 
for a lot of people, it's started to get them to ask those questions. Like, mm-hmm. is this, is this the best we can do in terms of a form of governance? Is, is this the, the proper level of control and authority over our lives that our government systems of government should have over us? And a lot of people are saying, fuck no. Mm-hmm. But then again, a lot of people like to my point earlier about acquiescence and just following the herd, a lot of people are just acting out of emotion and, you know, sta- uh, um, kind of a typical adherence to the status quo and just saying, yes, you know, like whatever, whatever they tell us to do, we do. That's Mm -hmm. what you do. So if they say shut down, if they say wear a mask, if they say, you know, bend over and lick your own asshole, that's what we have to do. Mm -hmm. And, uh, thank them for it later. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And irrespective of the cost, irrespective of the downstream effects. I mean, in this country, the government has borrowed, I, I, I think, has accumulated more debt than every other government in the history of the country combined. Uh, I think 30 or 40 or maybe even 50 times the last year's debt, which was a, a you know among a record year as well. And by last year, I mean 19. Um, so much, you know, money supply expanded tremendously. But because nearly as a percentage, nobody understands what these things mean in the broader population that what permits the acquiescence mm-hmm. that's what permits just saying yes oh you know if to save one life i don't want to kill granny so sure i'll i'll put the mask on and i'll do all this kind of stuff and that's what i'm talking about that people don't realize how dangerous that is people don't realize that that's what leads to the degradation of society ultimately and the co-option by people with more nefarious intents and then the combative you know the the propensity for different ideologies to spring up into combat and to have really, really, really gnarly things end up happening in a society. And we're so hubristic. We think, you know, any population that hasn't happened to, or at least hasn't happened to in a few generations, always just think, not us. Yeah. It's not, not going to happen to us. You know, like you, you think the Germans thought like, Oh, we're totally doing concentration camps and genocide in the next decade or two, hundred percent. We, I mean, mm. that's just who we are. Fuck no. They were, you know, developed, rich, you know, big middle class, lovely people, just like the rest of, you know, people in Europe at the time or anywhere else in the world right now. They're just people who went about their business, grew their families, like tried to enjoy life. But these things that you can't easily identify unfold over time. And if you're not careful about them, they unfold in really, really tragic ways. And I think that's part of the reason why it's so important to have certain absolutes in society where you do not tread, you do not like you never change because they're meant to be those kind of North stars that, that at least attempt to prevent those really bad things from happening. You know, so freedom of speech is, is one, right? Mm -hmm. You never, ever, ever trample on that because if you let go of that, if you, make it so people can express their ideas so there can be so that the level and and quality of discourse can't be what it needs to be to really vet ideas and ideologies. Mm -hmm. If you lose that, that's another step toward that really tragic outcome. And look where we are today. People are telling you things you can't say. People are being censored. Oh, you can't say this. You can't say that you're canceled for this. You're canceled for that. You know, we're there and that's super, super dangerous. And once you, once you lose those pillars, again, all bets are off. And, you know, I'm, I get goosebumps just articulating that because as hopeful and optimistic as I am ultimately for, you know, a new world predicated on Bitcoin, 
uh, I'm really apprehensive about what happens in the interim period because I just, I, I appreciate how things have happened in the past and I see a lot of parallels today. And, uh, you know, you could make a real easy argument. The level of rhetoric and the emotion today is even more absurd than it was in, in many instances in the past where really bad things ended up happening. And there's so little appreciation for the importance of those things. And I just hope uh, we wise up before, before it's, know, too late. it's too late. Yeah. Um, yeah. I see that, you know, I, I see that Bitcoin is the potential to, to save us from that. Um, and, you know, the internet as a whole, um, because I don't think they really expected, I don't think governments expected us to be able to ever communicate this way. Um, and so freely, um, but yeah, the freedom of speech, I mean, that's, you know, terrifying that I don't, I, I always say I've never liked a politician ever. There's not one politician where I could say, yeah, I like that one. Um, and, uh, but what really like the only thing that made me really sick over the election cycle in America was when Twitter banned Trump. And, and then that, that, uh, that one app parlor got like attacked and removed you know, because people said, oh, well, Twitter will ban them. They're a free company. They can do that. But he's on Parler. So he can go to Parler and he'll be on there. People can still hear him. And then Google and Apple said, oh, we're not going to have Parler on our app store anymore. So all of a sudden it's gone. They're like, well, you can go to the website. You know, they have a website. You don't have to have an app. And then Amazon Web Services said, uh, we're not going to host the, the site anymore on our servers. So like within a day, it was just silenced. And like that, I mean, literally it was like, I felt like I saw a ghost and that was the scariest yeah. thing that I think has happened. And again, I don't really even like Trump, but like, I was just like, Oh my God, this shouldn't happen. But that's, this that's shouldn't happen point, across. Right? The point. Yeah. The, these, these pillars of society should be afforded to everyone, your friends and enemies alike, because that's the point of them is to kind of keep everything in as great a, you know, peace and sense of cooperation and coordination as possible, right? Mm -hmm. You lose them and an enemy, the, the, the degree to which someone is an enemy or is opposed to you in some way is, is exacerbated, you know, mm -hmm. tremendously. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I, I agree. And there's some, there's, there's too many examples to note, but I mean, like the stuff that gets on on social media and the level of censorship and, you know, Gina Carano was in an incident a couple of days ago in Hollywood. Well, she said like, it, it's, it's, it's literally insane. And that's why you know I said at the beginning, like, I feel like I'm in a crazy world because all I see is this crazy behavior all around. And I'm glad that I'm know, not the uh, only one that feels that way. I'm like, I, I sit there and I literally said, I was like, <laughs> oh, am I going not. insane? Like, am I, what is wrong? Like, <laughs> am I the only one that sees this? Like, it's a huge problem. And like, you know, <laughs> yeah, that Gina, but you, what were you going to go ahead. Well, I, I was just going to say, um, you know, and we talk a lot about like government bad in Bitcoin, right? Mm -hmm. Like government's just people, no different mm -hmm. than you and I, like, and they play to a different set of incentives. And, you know, so I don't think government is bad. I just think their incentives are too divergent from the incentives of the individual. Mm -hmm. And what we need to do is realign incentives. And I think Bitcoin as a meta incentive that uh, that forces everyone to play by the same rules 
helps to foster that alignment of incentives. And I think as a result, you'll see less divergence between individuals and the systems of governance that we erect to, to coordinate our behavior, you know, across larger groups of people. Mm -hmm. Um, Because like, we'll always have some form of governance. I think a lot of governance can be embedded in the money. And I don't mean in the sense of like, we program smart contracts in Bitcoin. I just mean, if the money is good enough, it really like it removes the necessity for a lot of, of governance. And, and I, like the structures of governance that we have are by and large there ultimately because of the type of money that we have and the systems that are required to administer, protect, make up for deficiencies and that kind of stuff. But I'm not against people in government. Uh, I just think our incentives are too divergent. And I think to the extent, I kind of think like, you know, peace, prosperity, cooperation equals the imbalance of power minus the aligned incentives, you know? So mm-hmm. the more we, so imbalance of power is just kind of how reality works, whether we're talking about planets, individuals, countries, whatever, like the, the one with the greater amount of power will be able to, if they choose, ex- express that to their own benefit, right? Mm-hmm. That just seems to be kind of a law of reality, a law, a law of nature. But if we can, but if you align incentives, that diminishes the effect or kind of it removes the need to express the imbalance of power, right? Because you're both you know, you both have the Mm -hmm. same goal. You're both running in the same direction. And so I think to the extent that we can align incentives. And again, I think Bitcoin is massive in that regard that will, that will remove the imperative or the influence of imbalances of power that will always exist, exist in, in different ways. And that will mean we'll have more cooperation, more prosperity, more peace. And I think 99.9% of us want that. Mm -hmm. And so it's, it's not me versus the government. I know that's, that's easy mm-hmm. framing right now. And a lot of us really dislike a lot of the things that the government is getting on with and they've gone down a really bad road, but it, you know, it's, it's just people in governance and what we're seeing now, and this is a very hopeful thing is that some people in, in government, even though it, you know, you're like they're starting to be impacted by the incentives of Bitcoin, let's put it that way. Mm-hmm. And so they are starting to, uh, make the case for Bitcoin. They are starting to promote Bitcoin. You know, Cynthia Lummis in Wyoming, you've got Mayor Suarez down in, in uh, Miami, you know, and, and so people are starting to pop up and they're saying this is, the principles of Bitcoin are the same as the principles of the founding of, of the United States, which I think were founded on phenomenal principles, right? Mm-hmm. Like we mentioned one was free speech and, you know, individual sovereignty and, you know, those are great principles. It's just that when they're written in a document and the political structure is said, like, let's base our, 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 the way we operate on this, you're still back in that trust domain. It's like, well, Mm -hmm. there's nothing really forcing you to continue to operate in that, in that way. It's just like a nice to have. It's a, it's like, it's Mm -hmm. a nice, nice rule that we can choose to abide by or not with Bitcoin, at least in so far as the, the network is concerned, you can't violate the rules of the network. And I mm-hmm. think that the, 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 the fact that it, it has that and it, it, it expresses these ideas or it represents these ideas of freedom 
um, I think is very appealing to people in the government and in the population that also value those those ideas, those ideas of individual freedom and sovereignty, because there are still many, even in the government. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, I think because the way the U.S. was founded, it may be, you know, even though it's like the most powerful government in the world and presumably they have the most to lose by Bitcoin ascending to dominant global money. I think the ideas and philosophies and ideologies on which it's founded make it make more of a magnetic pull, you know, Mm -hmm. between the two to come together. And I think it forces people in the government, if they really truly believe in those principles on which the country was founded, that they have to ultimately accept it and adopt it and promote it because it's on very similar principles. Um, And so, you know, I I think uh, it kind of, it puts your principles to the test in many ways. And this is why we Mm -hmm. see a lot of changes that happen on the individual level, but especially if you're in a position of governance in a country like the U S it really, like, do you really believe in individual sovereignty and freedom? Because if you do, you shouldn't be against this thing. Mm-hmm. And so, and, and the more that becomes clear, I think the more political pressure will be on those people to explain themselves if they don't, right. Mm-hmm. If they don't agree with it or, or, or whatever, you know, and we, st- there's a lot of hurdles to cross and there's a lot of FUD and there's going to be the environmental FUD and there's going to be, mm-hmm. you know, all, all the regular stuff, but, um, there's so there's there's a wave of information and there's a wave of intelligent and articulate people coming to represent this and willing to ride or die for it basically mm-hmm. and I'm in that category and yeah. uh, so that's uh, that's that's encouraging and so as perhaps this is always the case in history you've got like annihilation on the one hand and peace prosperity and 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 like possibility on the other and you just you're walking on the razor's edge um, uh-huh. in periods of history and, you know, maybe one wins for a time, one loses for a time. Uh, hopefully we're on, you know, I always the count on the of goodness of people, you know, like the goodness of the average person, like you said, even in government, like it's, you know, government bad, but like there are generally people are, are good. You know what I mean? Like people don't yeah. uh, generally want other people to be worse off. Um, it is interesting. Like you said, if, the U S adopting it, I think, you know, it's kind of like a Steve jobs, you know, with, with, uh, you know, innovating in Silicon Valley and how you have to cannibalize yourself to stay on top. I kind of think that that's what the U S has to do to stay on top. They have to, they have to eat the dollar. They have to, um, you know, adopt Bitcoin and maybe they'll do it. Maybe they won't. Um, just a couple more questions, but, uh, you know, with you're mentioning like, you know, different governments and the, and the FUD and everything like for new people, you know, they they might go on the internet and see like, you know, China has 50% of the hashing power and they can shut down Bitcoin. Like outside of, you know, I mean, of course, you know, you can dismiss it, but like, you know, what is, are there real threats to Bitcoin for people that don't know it well enough? Like what could shut it down? I always tell people the only way it could be shut down is if the entire earth got EMP'd. Um, but if that happens, we have a much bigger problem than the yeah. money system going away. Um, but I, I live in that. I don't have a good way to explain to people that there's not, it can't be shut down. Yeah. I, I don't, like you said, like anything that could shut Bitcoin down permanently pretty much shuts humanity down permanently, you know, mm-hmm. uh, like an asteroid <laughs> yeah. or nuclear bomb or something like that. Like, because we rely so heavily on our information systems today, 
Uh, and if those go away and the gold bugs, like uh, that's always a case against Bitcoin or for gold. It's like, yeah, but if things get really bad, we're going to like be using gold coins again to get our bread. I'm like, if things get that bad, where in information systems are completely shut down, uh, you're not going to want gold. You're going to want lead and water. And yep. by lead, I mean bullets, you know, because that's, yeah. that's where things are going to be. And uh, so I don't think anything can shut it down depending on what jurisdiction you're in, you know, you're the people that govern you can make it more difficult for you. Like Nigeria just outlawed it. India seems in the next three to six months, they're going to outlaw Bitcoin or outlaw cryptocurrency. Um, and that's really stupid for them because if mm -hmm. you understand this system, you understand that it's not stoppable. And when you have something that's unstoppable and that provides value to people, the inevitable outcome is it wins. And mm -hmm. if you are bet, if you are betting against that, if you are banning your people and your country from Bitcoin, that's just a really short sighted decision. And that's going to hurt you and your people in the future. So that's mm -hmm. really, really stupid. Uh, but as far as it, like if, you know, the tax treatment in different jurisdictions, China, um, when I was living there, they shut down the exchanges, right? So it's not illegal to hold Bitcoin, but you're not allowed you can't to get it. Uh, exchange it. So stuff like that can make it harder, but again, it doesn't stop Bitcoin. It just unfortunately makes it more difficult for certain subsections of the global population to get access to it. Mm -hmm. I hope that doesn't happen in the States. Um, you know, States, obviously there's been a lot of innovation and adoption of Bitcoin. It's probably the country that's adopted Bitcoin the most. And then you've got places like, you know, the Netherlands and Japan and Germany that are high up there as well. Um, but I, you know, I don't think you could turn off all of China's hash power uh, and they, you know, it, the, the system would readjust and hash power is coming online all over the world on a regular basis. It's becoming more decentralized through, you know, this waste gas mining and finding sequestered energy to put Bitcoin mines on and, and mine Bitcoin from there, which decentralizes the hash power. Um, and it's early days for that. I mean, the, the, the biggest argument that comes up is like government could somehow marshal a majority of the hash power and sensor transactions basically for mm -hmm. in, in perpetuity, which theoretically possible. Uh, I think, you know, first of all, the government would dramatically show their hands that like we are authoritarian and against freedom and we're going to stop this thing. And even if they did, I think the collective will of the global of, of humanity would figure out ways to push back, compete and ultimately outcompete those government efforts. Right. Mm -hmm. and, and for all the power they have, governments are exceedingly inefficient and, and clumsy and slow and, you know, and stupid in the sense of you can never have a centralized entity have as much quote unquote wisdom as an emergent market process. Mm -hmm. And so like, you know, centralized, colluding centralized governments of the world versus billions and billions of people conjuring up market solutions. I'm putting my bets on the ladder. Mm -hmm. So, uh, I, I don't think there's, I don't think a shutdown is realistic. The only thing that I think, well, it's happening now. So the only thing that is a, cons a consideration is the jurisdictional arbitrage, right? So if you are a person in Nigeria or India, and you have a substantial portion of your savings in Bitcoin, maybe it's time to move. Mm -hmm. Right. And that may be the case in Canada. That may be, I mean, probably is going to be the case in Canada because you know, all the things that the government are doing now, they're going to need to tax the living shit out of this population over the next 10 years, if not sooner. Mm -hmm. And that's going to put a lot of, uh, 
you know, that's, that's going to be seen as a uh, egregious infringement to a lot of people. And they'll be coming after all of your assets and there'll probably be a wealth tax. There'll probably be an unrealized capital gains tax and all this sorts of craziness. And so people will have to uh, maybe move around in order to not be subject to the, the, the policies in their jurisdiction. That's to be expected, but that does not shut Bitcoin down at all. It just means, uh, you know, for a period of time, you might, might have to be a little bit more agile if you want to take full advantage of the network. Yeah. And I mean, the only, like I had somebody say, well, what if China gets more than 50% of the hash power and then they decide they have all the voting rights and they shut it down. And I was like, to be honest with you, I don't, I don't know it well. <laughs> I was like, I don't know the ins and outs of Bitcoin well enough to answer that. But like, I mean, is that a realistic threat or is that? No, I mean, if they have 51% of the hash power, like they can, they can censor transactions, you know, they can, but they it's not like they the can steal. Or... I mean, they can go back a certain amount in the blockchain, but you know, not very far and not an extent that would like kill Bitcoin or anything like that. And, you know, and the, let the ultimately, and this is kind of like a hail Mary or like nuclear scenario, but the, the UTXO set, the ledger is still everywhere. You know, there's a copy, you know, you can never destroy that. And that's kind of like what's, you know, that allows you to restart if ever, you know, something like that happened. But like, I, I think the most likely scenario if there's someone gets the most hash power is, is they censor, they, they attempt to censor transactions. Um, I just think the market routes around that, you know, to, mm -hmm. you know, in a not very long period of time. So, the, so it, it just ends up being a huge waste uh, of money for the attacker. Now, uh, yeah. Now, obviously the thing is, is like, if you're a 50, if you have 51% of the hash power, you're not losing money necessarily because you know, you're, you're gaining money. But if you attack the network, right it's possible you screw up the the economics of that and then um you know then the the attack does maybe end up costing a lot of money or it, it's a it's a valid question but from my understanding it's just that it's not something that can be um uh executed for a long period of time it, there will be a large cost it will be very difficult to do it without being noticed. Um, and I just, I think the market will route around it. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's not, it's not definitely not something that keeps me up at night and, and look like uh, we've always kind of talked about this stuff in Bitcoin and thought about it in a very adversarial way. And I think that's good. And I, I, I think it's possible, maybe even probable that like things come down the pike in the future that are uh, adversarial. But right now there's a lot of tailwinds, you know, governments mm. in, in most governments aren't signaling that they're going to try to stop this thing. Most mm. governments seem to be signaling that, you know, they're fine to let it integrate into the system and, and let all the big play, you know, because the other thing is, is like governments are run by people, as we said before, and those people are usually either powerful people or influenced by powerful people. And the most powerful institutions in the world are banks. Mm -hmm. and Bitcoin pulls on, you know, the one thing that kind of does align everybody is greed. Mm -hmm. And um, so all these banks see this trillion dollar asset, very close to it now. Um, and they think there's a lot of money to be made here. I want to make some, I want, I want my, I want some of that. 
Mm-hmm. And um, I think that that their greed is going to cause them to let it in in the in the front door. Like it doesn't even have to barge down the gates or sneak in the back door. I think they're going to let it right in the front door. And you know, and maybe even maybe they rationally understand that like like when you game this out, if you're an adversary, you say, okay, can we stop this thing? If yes, how and how much does that cost? I think a lot of people that have to ask that question, the answer is no, it can't be stopped. Okay. What's the most rational approach then? Well, the most rational approach is to align with it, stake our territory, try to benefit and maximize our opportunity with it as much as possible. And so I think that's what we're going to see is like, we're going to see a lot of people that confront it and say, holy shit, this is happening and it can't be stopped. How do we not get destroyed by it? How do we take advantage of it? So Bank of New York Mellon yesterday, who, who custodies over $2 trillion in assets, they said, you know, we're going to deal in Bitcoin. We're going to offer it to our clients. We're going to issue it, whatever the hell that means. But, you know, they're, they're going to mm-hmm. be involved in the ecosystem because at a trillion dollar valuation and what a lot of people expect to be a $10 trillion and then a $100 trillion valuation, you're going to be left out in the cold if you don't get involved. Mm-hmm. And the process of getting involved just makes it a self-fulfilling prophecy and perpetuates the momentum that's already been generated and ultimately disintermediates uh, and disrupts a lot of the existing business models of these, these places. And I think they realize that. So what I, you know, to bring that to the most relevant domain is, you know, everyone's always asking like, when will central banks start putting Bitcoin on their balance sheet? And then, you know, if you got like Venezuela and Iran and North Korea, who apparently already do, Mm-hmm. I'm not sure the validity of that information. You, you can't really trust those jurisdictions, but let's just say mm-hmm. that's true. Um, I think a lot of them probably already are because mm-hmm. they're not stupid. And I'll, I'll use China as the example. My experience and observations of the Chinese government having lived there is that they're extremely pragmatic and they're, you know, they're more than happy to do one thing with this hand and do a totally different thing with another and not, not tell anybody about it. And I think they look at this thing and they say, this could be massively disruptive to fiat currencies and, you know, to the way things work now. It could also be a massive opportunity. In any case, it would be really irresponsible of us to not have a position should this work out in the future. Um, And, you know, maybe we'll never find out or maybe we'll find out in 10 or 20 years. But if I was to bet and if, if it could be verified somehow, I would bet money that they've been accumulating for a while mm-hmm. for the very same reason that bank of New York Mellon or any other private company would do it is because you look at the, the landscape and you say, if we don't, we're going to be at a severe disadvantage. If as a business, as a, like a, a corporate entity, as a bank, as a government, if we don't put Bitcoin on the balance sheet, if we don't get involved in this business, we're going to be put at a severe disadvantage in the future by making that decision. And therefore we're not going to make that decision. We're going to get involved. Mm-hmm. And I think that those are the dominoes that are falling now and people are starting to realize that. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I'm starting to, to feel as well. I, I feel like everybody's going to get in on it. Whoever jumps first is going to be the first, you know, um, that is going to be the most beneficial, um, you know, and that's why I, yeah, I mean, like look, look at micro strategy. Yeah, well, sure. On a, on a nation state level, but like, the fact that MicroStrategy was able to pick up, let's say, 71,000 Bitcoins, like that's going to be 
when, when, when kids are studying business in, in the universities of the future, that's going to be the case study of like, Oh, bow down everybody. To how <laughs> prescient and how much of a boss move that was, because that's going to be a lot of money in the future. And, uh, it's going to be, and, and the way he went about it and the way he was the first, and of course the way he's articulated his reasoning and podcasts and media since it's going to be a, a fun case study for some future business student or economic student in the future. Oh yeah. Yeah. Even with my like different businesses, I'm like, you know, probably the best way to 10 X our revenue is to just put our entire like balance in, in uh Bitcoin, <laughs> like, you know, like really like it, I can well, do nothing, you know? So, I mean, let, yeah, let's, Im- <laughs> let's improve revenues. Let's, you know, let's grow the businesses, but like, you know, the, the most likely scenario or the, the highest probability of 10 Xing our revenue would be to change our treasury over to, to Bitcoin. Um, yeah. I mean, well, put it this way, put it this way, MicroStrategy, I think they were around since, I think they were around since 89, but maybe went public in 98 or something like that, but let's just use the public date. Mm-hmm. So over the course of 20 years of operating their business, they accumulated $500 million uh, in savings on their balance sheet, 20 years of work. And in the last four months, they've turned that 500 million into over 2 billion, which would, so that extra 150 or or 1.5 billion is equivalent to, uh, 60 years of operating the business, Mm -hmm. 60 years net income from operating the business. That's crazy. (laughs) That's pretty, I mean, like, so back to that point about if, yeah, if you don't, if you don't make that decision, it's not even just like salivating about the upside. It's, can you remain competitive against people that do make that decision? You know, like whoever, I don't know who MicroStrategy's competitors are, but let's say they've been competing for the last 20 years. Can you still compete with MicroStrategy if they just put 60 years of net income on their balance sheet that they can do shit with to fuck your shit up? No. Probably <laughs> not. Nope. You know, if, if you were neck and neck before and now they have that advantage, probably not. So that's going to play out on every scale. It's, you know, like if, if you don't, if people don't, don't make that decision, they're probably going to be outcompeted pretty quick in the not too distant future. Yeah. Um, yeah, it'll be, <clears throat> it'll be exciting to see. Um, and, uh, what, you know, one last thing, uh, you know, a lot of people, especially if they've made it to this point in the podcast, um, you know, they're, they're new and they're thinking about getting into it, but they probably are looking at Bitcoin going, wow, $48,000 of Bitcoin. I, I can't afford that. And, you know, even when they figure out the fractal, oh, I can get one, one millionth or 100 millionth of a Bitcoin, but you know, what, what's that going to do? What, what is your message to people to let them know that it's not too late? Like they didn't miss the boat, you know, it's still early to get in. Well, first, everybody thinks they're too late. And I mean, people that got in when Bitcoin was $1. Right. Mm-hmm. You can go back on Twitter and see the tweets or, or go into the forums and see the threads of people talking about how they missed the boat when Bitcoin was a dollar. And the same thing when it was a hundred and the same thing when it was a thousand and it would be the same thing at a hundred thousand. It'd be the same thing at a million, you know, like to the extent there's, you know, there's still people that are, that are out. So, you know, the nominal value is, is kind of meaningless. Like, look, as it gets bigger, the ability for it to get bigger diminishes, right? Because mm-hmm. like when it's a dollar, it can, it can 1 trillion X, right? 
Mm-hmm. We're not going to see a 1 trillion X from here, but we're probably going to see a thousand X from here in our lifetimes, you mm-hmm. know, for Bitcoin. Um, so, and, and also like, this is, this is my typical answer is even when it's got a hundred trillion, 200, 300, whatever trillion market cap, like when it's dominant global money, mm-hmm. like it's what the entire global financial system runs on. Um, it's still a buy because it's money. Like, mm-hmm. it's not like at that time I'll be like, Whoa, it's too expensive. I'm not going to buy anymore. What else am I going to use for money? Mm-hmm. Right. So again, it's a, it's a kind of a perspective of how you look at it. And what we discussed right at the beginning, don't think of it as an investment. Cause then you're thinking about timing, volatility, you know, gains, all this stuff. Think of it as money. This is how you preserve the value of your capital. This is how you preserve the sacrifices you made in the past. This is how you maintain your optionality on the future, right? So mm-hmm. in, through that lens, the, the price is irrelevant. It, is it the best way to, to do all those things? Is it the best way to do all of that? If the answer is yes, then you just siphon your savings into that. And like, I get it. It's only 12 years old and there's still question marks around that. So I'm not saying all of your savings right now. I'm just saying like, even when it's $10 million a coin, I'm still going to be buying it because it's how I want to preserve my savings, preserve the value of my savings and, and my, and my optionality in the world. So it's like, everyone likes to get rich basically. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and, that's kind of the problem with like altcoins and distractions is like people think there's more upside to them, but you got to understand they're not even, we're not talking about the same thing. Mm -hmm. Altcoins is pure gambling. You know, it's like maybe someone else will, you know, maybe people will pump it so you can make more money, but when are you going to get out? How much is enough? Like all these questions, what we're dealing with with Bitcoin is the next iteration in the ever evolving process of human beings trying to upgrade the form of money that they use. Bitcoin Mm -hmm. is the next iteration in money. And that's a huge, huge deal. And it's, so it doesn't matter what price you get in that. Like, and like, are you going to be looking at your amount of Bitcoin and deriving a US dollar exchange value for it? Because that's kind of the wrong way to look at it. Everyone likes to know how rich they are, but you know, like I said before, just the fact that your nominal value of Bitcoin is increasing, that means your savings are increasing. And that's what you should be looking at. Forget entirely the exchange rate. I know it's exciting. We on Twitter, mm-hmm. like we get all bombastic when it hits new all time highs, but that's irrelevant. Mm-hmm. You know, like you start off with 0.001 Bitcoin and then a month later or a year later, whatever you're at 0.002 and 0.01 and 0.02 and 0.5 and point you know, nine and then one, like, that's how you should be looking at it because that's all that matters. That means that more of your work is being stored in the most effective way for the longest period of time into the future. That's what matters. So it's don't try to time the market. Don't do any of that shit. Take, you know, take an amount that you're comfortable with and start considering it as, as a savings vehicle for your future and your kids' future and your grandkids' future and generations into the future. That's the way to look at it. So Bitcoin is always a buy, in, in, in my opinion, because every time I buy it, the nominal amount of Bitcoin I have increases. I don't mm-hmm. actually care about the exchange rate. Yeah, that's. Uh, I think I learned that lesson. I tried trading one time to like increase the value of the dollars. 
Um, and, and I found myself as soon as I did it, I wasn't looking at the dollar. I was looking at how many Bitcoin I was going to get back, you know, like, cause I, I did, I did do it and the, the price went down and I'm, I'm not recommending this to anybody because I did it once. And I felt like it was literally for like two hours. I sat there like watching the price and I like was in turmoil. I felt terrible. I'm like, why did I do that? Why did I do that? <laughs> but it went down. And that was the aha moment for me was I saw that the amount of Bitcoin I was going to own when I bought back in went up. And I was like, whoa, I'm not looking at the dollars. I'm looking at the Bitcoin. And then ever since then, I'm like, the, the best way to guarantee that you get more Bitcoin is to just buy it and, yeah. and keep buying. So um, exactly. And that, that is a shift for a lot of people. And like I said, it's a, it's a, it's different to how they look at every other investment they've ever made. So I, I, the framing, I think that's, that's beneficial is that this is money. It's not investment. Mm-hmm. That's how you should look at it. Yeah. You don't own, own more stock in, in general electric. You own more currency. <laughs> you know, that's more important. Yeah, exactly. Um, all right. Well, John, thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. Um, you know, and a lot of new Bitcoiners, I think will appreciate it and they will inevitably, uh, you know, they'll, they'll find you. And if they found this, they found you already, but, um, you know, this rapid fire podcast, uh, I strongly recommend it's a great listen. Uh, John, I really appreciate your, you know, like very calm demeanor on your, your podcast. It's, uh, it's, you know, it's refreshing because like this can be such a volatile world. Um, you know, so it it is nice to to have that, uh, you know, kind of calm and steady presence. And, uh, so anybody check him out there. Um, and on Twitter as well. And, and thanks again for coming on. Well, man, I, I appreciate the invite and the kind words and, um, you know, congratulations on getting this, this thing off the ground and I look forward to uh, seeing more. And that was John Vallis. Uh, great interview with John. I really appreciated this time. And, you know, a lot of the stuff we talked about, you know, especially uh, getting into the the sovereign individual and, and what it means and, and the power that comes with being in charge of your own money and, uh, and how that kind of breathes into the power of other parts of your life and having control over that and power. So I really appreciate John coming on. Um, Check back for more episodes uh, next week and um, and let me know uh, any feedback. Always welcome. Uh, You can find me at Bitcoin Simply on Twitter. Thanks, guys.